When people threaten me, it doesn't make me afraid, it makes me angry. <laughs> so what's happening to me may seem unusual for a philosopher, but it's not unusual for the people who do environmental pollution work. Welcome to Such That Cast, Behind the Philosophy. And welcome back, if there are any of you left since the previous episode. Today's guest is Christine schrader Frechette, And if you just want to go straight to the interview, you can just skip two or three minutes ahead. Um, because I feel like I first owe you an explanation of what's been going on. Well, after nine episodes, I was really starting to get the hang of things. Uh, I had a few episodes in the pipeline and several interviews scheduled, and it looked like I would finally be able to put up an episode at least once a month. Then I went to Lisbon last summer for a conference, and my laptop, together with a lot of podcast equipment, was stolen. First, this meant that I had to cancel a couple of interviews scheduled in Lisbon, uh, including one with Andrew Feenberg that I've been really looking forward to. I did have dinner with him, actually, without any recording equipment, uh, and just to rub it in, he told these fantastic stories about when he met Chatra, his relationship with Marcuse, uh, the experience of being in Paris in the late 60s. Stories just perfect for this podcast, and I promise you I will have Fienberg as a guest in the very near future. Losing my laptop also meant that I lost two interviews that I hadn't backed up. Uh, one was Bernd Karsenstahl, which is irrevocably lost. The other was Christian Schrader for Shet. Uh, as luck would have it, however, I did still have a downsample, reduced quality version of the interview, uh, so I've spent a lot of time recovering that, uh, and I've tried to improve the quality to the best of my ability, but it's very difficult to do so once you downsample the audio. I hope and believe it still turned out pretty well, but there are some patches where the quality drops and there are some minor sound artifacts throughout. I hope that's not going to be too annoying. Getting this episode also took extra long because I also had to be extra cautious with the editing and her approval this time around, since she is constantly being threatened by companies that want to put a stop to her activism. Her genuine concern and her actual involvement with politics and industry is very inspiring, which is one of the many reasons I really wanted to post this as interview number 10. It is also the first female guest on the show, which is important because I've been embarrassed by the male dominance so far on such that cast. Uh, and finally, it's also just a very enjoyable conversation as she vividly describes a life of activism from childhood to this day. Okay, I've got more news about such that cast and some interesting challenges ahead, but I will let you know about that after the interview. So without further ado, such that cast episode 10 is finally here with Christine Schrader Fischett. Enjoy. <laughs> so far has been that they will sort of really work hard to make a difference. They get involved in politics, sort of public philosophy, that kind of stuff. Uh, but also most of them sort of get that calling late in their careers. Uh, but when I look at your career, it looks like you've been active forever almost. Well, that's right. Uh, both of my parents were civil rights activists in right. the United States. They would bring us children along to civil rights marches and we had a little red wagon. In the U.S., they were called flyer wagons. Right. So the, the children who were like six or seven or eight or nine got to walk and hold my parents' hands. And the little ones, I'm the oldest of seven children, the little ones would be in the wagon and we'd be <laughs> pulling them. So 
When you grow up with your parents taking you to civil rights marches, it changes your life. The other thing that's interesting is that uh, my mother grew up in a small southern town that was violently racist, Mm. and uh, her father ran a dry cleaner shop, and he hired uh, the first young black woman in the town. The young black woman was, I think, the first African-American college graduate in the state, very distinguished young woman, and no one would give her a job because of racism. This Mm. was in a small town called Danville. So my grandfather ran the dry cleaning shop and hired her as his assistant and seamstress. And uh, the two of them ran the shop. So when my grandmother became ill with encephalitis, which causes neurological degeneration, very, very serious, the black woman, Catherine Jackman, then took my mother home with her to the African-American community to take care of her since her own mother was gone. Wow. So she literally uh, grew up in a town with dirt roads, no paint, outdoor toilets. So she was raised in that black community. Wow. So for me as a child, visiting grandmother meant going to the same black community. Right. Uh, with still no paint on the houses, because <laughs> paint costs money, <laughs> still had outhouses, and uh, the car would go down the street, and people would come out running, uh, saying my mother's name, and say, oh, it's Millie and the children. <laughs> so when you grow up that way, you can't, uh, unless you rebel against your parents. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> That explains a lot, because your mother was the first white member of the NAACP. Right, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I remember her, after being a church leader of the entire organization in the church we went to, she found out the pastor was a racist, so she told him she was leaving and not coming back. Right. (laughs) So we had lots of episodes like that. I see. And how was... I suppose that by that time she didn't live in a, in a black community anymore. She lived in a more... Uh, no, when she married my father, she moved to a large city of about, well, relatively large, about half a million people, mm-hmm. which so, is where we came along. Right, so yeah. she could enjoy some anonymity there, or was it a problem? Some there? anonymity, but that's where the civil rights marches were. So she mm-hmm. was born in the small town and literally lived in the black community. And we went to see... Uh, our grandmother there, <laughs> and uh, then she married my father and moved to the big city. Wow, fascinating! So, actually, if I this is a bit early, perhaps, but if I may touch on something personal to that effect, ah. uh, so your mother died uh, eventually of uh, environmentally induced cancer. Exactly, uh, just a year after you finished your PhD. Uh, it was actually before I had finished my PhD. Right. Uh, yeah, just a year year before I'd finished my PhD, right. I think. And you were the oldest of seven children? And I was the oldest of seven. So I got my first uh, teaching job so that I could be back in the town where she was and look after my younger brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So that was a hard time. I didn't realize at the time that her cancer was environmentally induced. It was only after my study years later. Uh, What happened was that 
She was a tiny little spitfire of a woman who weighed about 90 pounds <laughs> and was a little over five feet tall. And uh, all of us are giants, you know, just under over six feet tall. So mm-hmm. none of us could be born naturally. So when we had cesarean sections, when she had cesarean sections, they kept irradiating her pelvis. Oh, and of course, she had bone cancer that began in her pelvis. Right. So. Oh, uh, so sad. And is that sort of the main motivator why you are now so active? No, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that. Let, let me just point out that in the United States, 40,000 cancers a year are caused by x-rays. Right. And so people should never have unnecessary x-rays. So still to this day, it's that thing? Still to this day, people misuse ionizing radiation. And indeed, there are no standards for medical uses of ionizing radiation. People assume that the uses are therapeutic and that the doctor uh, always knows what is right. Mm-hmm. But the doctors don't know what is right. Yeah. They often experiment or make mistakes Plus, by the time the people get cancer, that's a few years later. Mm-hmm. So, no, I got into uh, environmental work because I went to university to study uh, mathematics and physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father had said he had never met a, a woman mathematician that he considered smart. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a challenge. So, not only, but the math was interesting. If you understood it and loved it, you didn't have to study. And right. I'm half lazy. So, <laughs> that's why I did math and physics. But then, after I did the math and physics, uh, I discovered that there was a, a dump nearby, a low level radioactive waste dump. Hmm. And that people were dying from the pollution because water would get into the dump, which was a shallow land area of radioactive waste. And there were things in there, including plutonium, which has a half-life of tens of thousands of years. But when rainwater would go into the dump through the ground, the holes in the ground that contained the waste would fill up like a bathtub. And then the company would illegally pump the water from the the radioactive waste bathtubs that contaminated water called leachate, they would pump it over the hill at night down into areas where people were, rural people. Wow. Uh, they contacted the university to see if anybody would help them. Uh, another guy and I said we would help. And that was when, for the first time in my life, I suddenly realized that to save money, people would pollute and kill other people. Mm. And they didn't care what happened. Right, because they did it in the middle of the night. So They did it in the middle of the night. And then first the cattle, the farm animals died, because this was a rural area of Kentucky called Moorhead. It was several hours from the university. The people who ran the, the radioactive waste dump said that uh, the cows and chickens were all dying because they weren't being fed right, which was absurd. Mm-hmm. They just made up lies. Well. Yeah. You know, when you're young and idealistic, and for the first time, you realize that people do outrageous things. Yeah. Lying, cheating, stealing, in ways that kill other people. That's an incredible experience. Mm. (laughs) Absolutely. I'll get back to some more of that later on. Um, But you changed your philosophy after your uh, physics and mathematics. Right. That... 
I only changed because someone nominated me for a, my one of my professors nominated me for a fellowship that I had to use in philosophy, mm-hmm. and I didn't know he'd done it. Okay. He said it was stupid to waste my brain on something as irrelevant as mathematics. So he nominated me for a, for a, for a fellowship, and then I won it, and then I had to take it. <laughs> so that's how I got into philosophy. <laughs> Reluctantly? Or? Well, I'll, I would study all my... If someone's going to pay me to study, True. I would study <laughs> almost anything. I, <laughs> any one of us would spend our lives studying if somebody would pay for it, right? Yeah, True. <laughs> Do you remember having an interest in philosophy before that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it was interesting, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't dislike philosophy. Right. I mean, it was my philosophy professor who did that, who uh, nominated me for the fellowship. I see, I see. So... Uh, <laughs> because I was going to ask that because uh, I read this one review where you, have this, you were described as being the closest to the platonic ideal of merging philosophy, politics, and the public good as any philosopher since John Dewey. Um, so I was wondering, do you have any role models? I've seen you mention uh, Mother Jones and Thomas Jefferson in other interviews. Well, John Locke comes to mind in some ways. There's some things I don't like about Locke, but John Locke comes to mind because remember when he said that the divine right of kings was stupid. Right. <laughs> He was accused of treason. He was about to be assassinated. And so he left England, practiced medicine, assumed a false identity, (laughs) and kept doing what he was doing. But the two things that are interesting about Locke are that he didn't stop speaking out even when he was accused of treason. Mm Thomas Jefferson also was accused of treason. And all they did was speak for democracy and ethics Mm -hmm. and and human rights. So the fact that they did not remain silent is admirable. The other thing that's admirable is that both of them, and especially Locke, used their wits to survive. Right. And uh, that's admirable because they weren't just sort of noble sheep who died, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were courageous and they used their wits to survive. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting about John Locke is that uh in in you know in later years he, he returned to England, but he also was the sort of man who uh, was a polymath. I mean, he was friends with all the great scientists of the day, so he was involved in science and religion and philosophy and medicine, and he had an insatiable curiosity. So he's quite a remarkable man, yeah, and I I think he probably also was. Uh, a kind and good human being, apart from his brain, because, you know, his works on education were written for, was it his little nieces and nephews, I think? I think it was. So um, he was enough of my heroes that when Oxford invited me to come lecture, the first thing I did was go straight away to the library to see his manuscripts. (laughs) (laughs) So, interesting guy. Nice, yes. Uh, before getting more into your more current work uh, there's one more background piece that I wanted to ask about too Um, 
first of all I'm actually really really embarrassed because you are actually the first woman that I've interviewed on this podcast oh uh, which is uh, of course not intentional and I'm very embarrassed by that um, there aren't a lot of there, there are fewer women in philosophy than many of the sciences exactly and uh, that's yeah. been part of the reason and it is a male dominated profession um, so you, you would think that there's sort of a, the whole glass ceiling phenomenon but also looking at your career uh, you if I'm not entirely mistaken you became professor only one or two years after your PhD right and it looks like your career has been like very successful from day one almost but that that wasn't a move for careerism that was a move because my husband and I wanted to have a child right. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to do it right away yeah. <laughs> so I figured the smart thing was to get tenure the other thing was I asked to go uh, part-time at the university so that I could be with our children. Right. And they told me I couldn't do that. I'd either have to completely give up my position or stay full-time. That's so there. it wasn't as if I began with a goal of a career. Exactly. <laughs> it sort of happened. <laughs> it sort of happened. But have you felt... Uh... I'm not sure what the right word is, but... Uh, a victim of prejudice? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can tell lots of stories. Um, my dissertation director, because I, I love mathematics and am good at it, he kept saying, you have a man's mind. I said, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with genitals. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it really doesn't. But that was a very sexist thing to keep telling me. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you felt uh, insecure about your identity, that would be enough to really frighten you. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but since I learned from my mother and my father that... Um, you know, people aren't always right, and you have to challenge them. It was less of a burden. Yeah. But another thing I noticed, in the department in which I am right now, which is an excellent department, excellent, mm -hmm. very, 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 very good, uh, one of the best in the United States, I came there in 1998, and I was the first female full professor. Oh, right, yeah. And there were 45 men. <laughs> so... That's typical of the uh, that's typical of the profession. The other thing I notice is that I think it's easier for women who do mathematics and science related areas of philosophy to get ahead because people can't challenge the mathematics and science. Right, yeah. They think of it as difficult. So in our department at the university where I am, and I love my colleagues, they're open kind and gracious and wonderful and especially the young people I have not a bone of sexism in them I really love them mm. but uh, but I must say most all the women hired to this point have been women who do logic mathematics philosophy of logic right. philosophy of mathematics philosophy of science right. so that I've seen women come in and if they were in ethics People could just dismiss what they said. They don't have the minds of men. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's something about ethics where there might be more room for disagreement. Yeah. But in math and science, uh, I do think it's easier for women to, to succeed. A group of us women in philosophy got together 
and each of us contribute an essay. And the title of the volume is Singing in the Fire. Okay. <laughs> so it's an essay. The book has maybe 10 or 12 essays by the most prominent U.S. female philosophers. Mm-hmm. So, wow. uh, What does the title refer to? Well, that we're managing to sing and be happy and do our work, but we're in the fire, yes. singing in the fire, was the, <laughs> as if we were being burned at the stake or something, yeah, but we're still singing. I didn't choose the title, but... <laughs> but uh, well, speaking of the very plain, actually, that's you have published more than 380 articles and 16 books. You do a lot of teaching, you do a lot of pro bono work in addition to this, and you have raised two children on top of all this, and you're involved in a staggering number of boards and committees and organizations. And you also told me that you have a principle against working more than 40 hours a week. Exactly. So exactly. I want to know, how. what is your secret? How can you get all this work done? Luck. <laughs> luck. <laughs> Some, who knows, luck. But... Uh, I think people people think probably they get more done the more hours they work. But with feels like philosophy, I'm not sure that's the case. Right. Um, my husband and I made a pact that our relationship and our children would come first. So uh, I feel now now that they're out of university, I'm happy we did that. But I don't know what the answer is. But part of the answer, I think, is that when you know that your work can affect whether someone lives or dies or is protected from a pollutant. Mm-hmm. It's not hard being motivated to True. do that yeah. work. Uh, I literally sometimes have trouble sleeping at night because I worry about the people uh, with whom I'm working at yeah. the time. People whose children are dying because of the nearby releases of some factory, for instance. Mm-hmm. So I think if you find something that you care about and you're doing ethics that makes a difference in the world, it's hard not to be motivated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do you find to be, sort of in your career, what has been the most rewarding thing you've experienced so far, the most concrete, uh, direct results of your uh, involvement? There, there are a lot, and many of them have to do with wonderful, wonderful students, because I always work with students, and we do these projects together. Uh, in the 1990s, a multinational corporation was going to build um, a very dirty facility using substandard technology in a poor, totally African-American area of Louisiana, I think it was three days before Christmas, the facility released the draft impact statement about this noxious, substandard facility uh, that was being put in a poor minority community because uh, the builders always think the community is too ignorant and too poor to stop it. And they always release the impact assessments at inconvenient times because they know communities like this get help from academics like during the holiday season. So I'll never forget, I was building a gingerbread house and I had gingerbread up to my elbows. (laughs) And we were building this gingerbread house in the middle of the kitchen table. 
and the phone rang. And uh, it was this community in Louisiana, and the people said, uh, we have no money, but everyone told us that you would help us. So I said, okay, what do you need? As I'm getting gingerbread all over the phone, (laughs) right? I'm holding the phone. (laughs) So they told me uh, what was happening, and uh, about, about this dirty facility. I immediately washed my hands and uh, called my very best graduate student, brilliant, brilliant, wonderful guy, who used to be a painter before he became a philosopher, brilliant guy. Uh, and I said, uh, if you help me analyze this impact assessment, I'll feed you all during the Christmas holidays. <laughs> and graduate students are poor, and they always like good food. Yeah. <laughs> so that was our deal. <laughs> but uh, after that inauspicious beginning, uh, I think it was like six or seven years later that we discovered that we actually won. And that was the first major U.S. environmental justice victory. Wow. And I found that out on a podium in Australia because one of the other uh, leaders was with me speaking in Australia, and he said, you know, uh, we won the Claiborne Center victory. And I said, ah, oh, we did, we did. So, so I was really happy far away in Australia when I learned that after those years of fighting, we had won. Right. And that, was that the general, was that when you started doing these, this service learning with the students? I'd been doing it all along because I, was con- I wanted to show them that they could do philosophy mm-hmm. and ask about equal treatment about informed consent to risk, about people being compensated for unequal risk. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to understand that philosophy made a difference in the real world. When I began teaching, I noticed that there were very, very poor students with poor backgrounds, um, often African-American students, and I was trying to reach them. They'd never heard of Plato or Kant, right. but this was a way to uh, to reach them. And I, I can remember telling them, look, even rock and folk, especially rock and folk, are often about the difference you can make in the world. Yeah. I'm just doing it in a non-musical way. <laughs> I can remember trying to get them to think about it in so, that uh, way. Because in, in an intro class, you want the students to love the discipline. Precisely, yeah. They have, they have to contact it. So unless they're um, extraordinary geniuses, and most of us are not, I'm <laughs> certainly not, we need a, a special avenue yeah. to be introduced to philosophy. I ask the students to pick a poor or minority community that's being victimized by pollution. And there, there, is, there are thousands and thousands of poor minority communities victimized by pollution. Often it's one dump or one factory or one manufacturing center or one electrical utility. And in that area, poor people live there, immigrants live there, indigenous people live there, minorities live there. And often either the laws are not being enforced or the laws are inadequate. And as a consequence, the people bear uncompensated risk 
of which they're unaware, except that they know they have more asthma, more children are sick, more people have cancer. So I asked the students to choose a community like that and then either ethically or scientifically investigate the government or industry risk assessments, technology assessments, or environmental impact assessments that have been used to justify the status quo. Because for these situations to continue, there are many government studies and industry studies that have already been done that claim the situation is not harmful. Mm -hmm. And they're virtually all scientifically wrong and all ethically wrong because they're built for the purpose of justifying. The science is done and the philosophy is done for the purpose of justifying the facility. Mm -hmm. So the students learn that what they have learned in the classroom about consent, compensation, equal distribution of risk can be applied to this situation or what they've learned about a valid way to use models or a valid way to collect pollution data, that can be applied to this situation. Right. So they love it. They, they love not doing something theoretical, but applying their work. Mm-hmm. And your colleagues? What do they think about your approach? Um, they're glad that somebody's doing that because they think somebody should do it. Yeah. <laughs> but if I didn't also have very theoretical orthodox publications they probably wouldn't like that true yeah <laughs> <laughs> because philosophy departments attain their fame through these theoretical publications and books yeah. and they're ranked so yeah. you need those for the ranking yeah exactly you have also argued that we get the technologies and the government that we deserve that in a democracy we the people are is partly responsible for the kinds of policies and, and practices that, that you criticize a lot. Um, like, of course, I agree with that to a large degree, but at the same time, I think a lot of people just feel powerless in the face of these institutions. Uh, and especially if, as an individual with a job and a family to take care of, how on earth can little I make a difference here? Uh, so how do you think we should proceed in order to get more involvement in these kinds of things? And And... I also wanted to ask you how far should we go, things like civil disobedience, for instance. Well, you're really asking uh, two questions. How yeah. far should we go? So what is the and then do we get the... I, I think we do get the government we deserve. And um, forgive me for using the example of the United States, but unless the men and women who began the United States sacrificed their personal lives the nation would never have gotten off the ground. When Thomas Jefferson left his farm in Virginia to serve as Secretary of State under President John Adams, they could afford to pay him no money, and he had no money. So he had to mortgage his farm and get a loan at the bank in order to support himself when he went to serve the government. Now, farms don't do well when the master is away. doing voluntary government service. Or for another example, uh, Thomas Jefferson had a fine library that was donated as the first library of Congress. But all of these men sacrificed their personal lives. But uh, when you think, well, I'm a person with a family, a spouse, children, a job. 
how can I do this? Well, my response is, if you have a family, that's the perfect way to get involved. I think of my parents dragging us off to these civil rights marches, and I'm not sure we were happy to go all the time. (laughs) But uh, uh, my husband and I did things like, uh, I remember working on Sunday mornings in a shelter for abused women and children, and we took our children to play with the children in the center Mm -hmm. while we did some educational classes with the young women, and they learned that that's what you do on Sunday morning. You go to work at the center for abused women and children, and they learn that's the way you live your life. The average American is a lot worse, I think, in this regard than the average Dutch person, the average American watches five hours of TV. So when somebody tells me he does not have time for his democracy or her democracy, and then I hear that statistic on TV, I want to just go berserk. I have time because we never watch TV. Yes, I think. <laughs> so, so that's a, that's a solution. And when people feel there's nothing they can do, they can join a non-governmental organization, yeah. and there are many of them. Organizations like Physicians for Social Responsibility, organizations like Friends of the Earth, organizations like Greenpeace. Uh, there are many, 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 many organizations they can can join. I don't always agree with everything those organizations say, but I can tell you they they are good monitors for what's going on governmentally and who's getting hurt. Yeah. And at least in the United States, the only organizations that stop injustice are not the government. They're these non-governmental organizations like Greenpeace, like Friends of the Earth, like uh, Bread for the World. Those organizations sue on behalf of victims. Right. One of my favorite groups is the Southern Poverty Law Center. That continually group continually brings lawsuits for blacks who've been uh, treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. Only the non-governmental organizations are large enough and rich enough to fight the government right, yes. and to fight the rest of us who are not involved enough in governing. Mm-hmm. Because your arguments are often grounded in sort of concerns for equity and often related to uh, to pollution disproportionately affecting the poor and, and minorities. And that leads me to believe that you regard the environment and so on as having primarily instrumental value and that the reasons for protecting the earth is primarily for the benefit of humans. Do well, you... I don't even like to get in that discussion because yeah. I think discussions like that are wrong-headed. Mm-hmm. We're animals. We live in a natural world. Anything that hurts the environment hurts us. Now, it's not true that anything that hurts us that hurts the environment, but often, often that's true. So we stand or fall together. We're part of nature. And I think it's just misguided and scientifically and biologically uh, harmful (laughs) to separate humans and nature. Plus, the other problem is, uh, you know, I go scuba diving. I can have a mystical experience going scuba diving. I could stay there under the water and look at fishes for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) But some people don't feel that way about the natural world. So let people be different, have their different likes and dislikes. Let's just try to do what's biologically healthy 
for all of us, whether they're people who only care about humans or people who care about the rest of the environment. Mm -hmm. um, you argue that we need to become better informed about the kinds of risks that you get from, from radiation and pesticides and various types of carcinogenics. Um, and in your books and your talks, you present some rather depressive figures. Uh, <laughs> and the, my background is, is research on happiness, so what makes people happy. And there's some research that indicates that your subjective perception of your own health is more important for well-being than your objective state of health. Hmm. Uh, that, in other words, that if you are too hypochondriac or, and too paranoid, then that tends to affect your well-being. Uh, so in other words, what I wanted to ask is, like, how can you sort of appropriate these facts without just becoming depressed and, and hypochondriac? And paranoid right. Well, I think I think the same question holds for uh, for a person's individual health when they go to see a physician. Mm -hmm. I think if people are told they have some disease, and they resolve to take charge of their disease, to see what they can do through diet, through exercise, instead of sort of passively relying on the physician. When people take charge of their own physical health, having diseases doesn't make a difference. I have lots of autoimmune diseases. They can be debilitating. Right. But when you take charge of your health, instead of turning it over to the physician, you're doing something analogous to what we should do in a democracy. When you take charge of what's going on in your country, mm -hmm. instead of turning it over to a politician, yeah. you feel empowered. Right. Yeah. And... Uh, a wise physician I had one time uh, told me that. He said, you will get healthier and healthier the more you take charge of your health. Right. I think we become healthier and healthier because we daily interact not only with other people who make a difference, but we see small victories. Mm -hmm. And in the goodness of other people working for change is a, a powerful thing. Right, yeah. A powerful thing. So do you think it has to come from yourself or or would you, I've seen you be very critical of Sunstein in other regards, uh, but that general approach, that whole libertarian paternalism and, and trying to nudge people into making the right choices, uh, is that something you support? I think we need to use the market to encourage people to do what's right. Mm -hmm. And I think we should use any strategy we can. In the U.S. right now, for instance, the government subsidizes fatty, salty, sugary sorts of things because yeah. it's been subsidizing grain. Right. Yeah. It should be subsidizing, if it's going to subsidize anything, green vegetables, of which people don't eat enough. So I believe we should use the market and financial incentives to help achieve good. And I think we should use nudges to help achieve good. But my main, uh, my main quarrel with Sunstein is that he has taken substantial sums of money from right-wing think tanks mm -hmm. to promote a very crass sort of benefit-cost analysis yeah. that ignores the public's right to consent in a democracy. Right. And that is fundamentally authoritarian. So uh, that's my quarrel with Sunstein. Right. I've heard you say similar things before, and... When you talk, it, it sounds like I almost want to use you as an example in class because mm -hmm. uh, the things you emphasize, things like equity and being informed and, and all that, uh, it's it's very sort of anti-consequentialist in sort of a very uh, classical way that 
with the cost benefit analysis, yes, you can make all these calculations that all things considered and the positive consequences are higher than the negative. Um, but you are more concerned about those few individuals who will actually be affected by this. Right, but I'm, I'm not really opposed to consequentialism. Yeah. Uh, my line is that most people do the benefit-cost analyses wrong. Yeah. They only look at the cost to the producers of some technology, and they never, ever look at the health cost to the victims of the technology or the pollution resulting from the technology. They consider those costs external to the market system. Now, I believe that if all these external costs were internalized and we took account of them, there would be full consequentialist reasons for stomping massive pollution. That's why I, uh, I often quote, I think it's the American Public Health Association that says every dollar spent on pollution prevention, if I'm remembering my statistics correctly, and I may not be, but if every dollar spent on pollution prevention saves $7 in uh, jobs, medical losses, etc. So So we can play in their ballpark? I I think sound consequentialist reasons could lead us to protect people. Plus, who wants to live in a society in which, you know, we we victimize a minority for our own gain? I think a decent consequentialist like John Stuart Mill, a decent consequentialist uh, can be very, very forward-thinking. Mill was very, very forward-thinking, arguing for rights of women before it became fashionable. Uh, he was a kind of an, an amazing man. And and indeed, uh, remember, when the consequentialists came along, they were, re- they were replacing a sort of feudal hierarchical system and at least taking account of various benefits and costs was superior to a, a hierarchical system. So I think a good consequentialist, as Richard Brandt said, or a good deontologist, ethically speaking, will end up at the same position. Right. Hmm. Interesting. That actually also brings me to another topic, which is um, but you have been very open about being a Catholic, and you also, mm-hmm. um, from what I've seen, you, but you get a lot of inspiration from, from faith and so on. Could you say a bit more about how that affects your work? Yeah, I, I guess I could say um, say two things. I agree with basic Catholic theology. I don't agree with a lot of the authoritarianism, the homophobia, the sexism, the pedophilia that uh, is the opposite of anything spiritual. The teachings as such... I consider very, very close to socialism. Mm -hmm. The early church, the people lived in common, shared what they had. They also were radically uh, democratic. Jesus even said that no person put himself above another person. Mm -hmm. There were women, there were no priests in the early days. Everyone was equal. There were people who were deacons who helped out with the stuff. Those were often women. So I view the heart of Christianity as um, based on equality, based on things like the preferential option for the poor. And this comes out quite clearly in the Acts of the Apostles. It comes out quite clearly in um, the writings of the uh, 
the early people called fathers of the church. We don't have any mothers of the church, but these fathers of the church said that. Now, that said, I must also say, if I had not been raised in a Catholic family, would I have joined the religion? I'm not sure, probably not, because I I believe that... uh, If I was looking at the church from the outside and I looked at problems like sexism and homophobia and uh, all sorts of emphases on externals like wearing fancy clothes or having the Vatican Bank, when I see those uses of money and power, which are those like a bad earthly king. <laughs> yeah. um, it's very questionable, I think, that I would have found the nugget of theological truth because I would have been so put off by most of what we see. Yeah, and especially identifying with that organization perhaps. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that being said, I don't think it really matters whether people are believers or not. I don't think there's one church. I think religion, for anyone, is about the fact that God, and God is not some old man with a beard, God is love. And uh, we are religious if we love. Mm -hmm. We are not religious if we do not love. And uh, my best friend at the university happens to be an atheist, calls herself a militant atheist. <laughs> Would I say she's the most loving person I know at the university? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I would. So I find these labels disconcerting. Yeah. And when someone says, uh, are you a Catholic? I don't say yes or no. I say, that really depends on what you mean by the term. Exactly. <laughs> So I think people will be judged by by how they love. It's as simple as that. The other thing that I think is important to to bring out is that if you know uh, basic natural law theology, you know that people get to the truth through reason. You don't need to believe in God to get to the truth about ethics. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would be a peculiar sort of God (laughs) <laughs> that uh, justify heinous, vengeful acts and sacrifices and punishment and also said people could only get to the truth if they believed in God. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's just preposterous. But it, it so happens. What's good for people, what makes them happy, yeah. happens to be what's ethical. Mm-hmm. And you need not believe in God to come to a complete and full ethics. Yeah. So... Would my ethics change if I weren't a believer? No. No, and I think reason has to be uh, a continuing critic of what people call religion. Yeah. Because more harms have been done in the name of religion than almost anything. That actually brings up an important point, because what I dislike about certain strands of militant atheism is uh, the implication that people who believe are stupid. Um, right and 
And that's something that runs through your work as well. You also criticize Sunstein for for basically labeling lay people as as being stupid, and that scientists should take over more and more and make have more of a technocracy. So you obviously you have you have faith in humanity. I have faith in in humanity and in the goodness of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Despite seeing these horrible companies and industries, they are humans as well. Many many of those. People, I think, are either uninformed about what they're doing, mm-hmm. or secondly, they are in denial. You know, I think there's a massive level of denial. Right. I mean, I mean, remember some of the stories that were told about uh, Hitler's henchmen, like yeah. Goebbels. Uh, you know, he would take off his heavy boots at the door before entering his home so that he wouldn't wake his little canary. <laughs> but meanwhile, he would kill people. So I think people sometimes have a sentimental view of ethics yeah. rather than a powerful view of ethics in terms of rights, and they uh, they easily fall into denial. Right. They also just aren't educated. I know my dad is an engineer for many years, and he was very pro-nuclear. I wrote my first book on nuclear power, and my dad wanted to read it. Well, he read it, and it changed his mind. He said, well, I didn't know any of these facts. Wow, yeah. You know, I work in this area, but I don't know. I just know the practical side. So he'd go to the office and talk to the guys in the office about it, and he converted... To be anti-nuke and did the same for the guys in the office. I think that's why philosophers are important. They force people to think about epistemology, ethics, consequences, duties, liberty, compensation. Exactly. Like I said before, there are certain questions that I'm almost hesitant to ask you because, because in your work and in your latest book as well, you identify concrete names and concrete companies. Uh, and I can only imagine that they are keeping an eye on you now and that's uh, and maybe try to go to lengths to try to censor or, or undermine your claims in some ways even uh, is it a case that you have been approached in a way that you sort of experience as threatening and if oh, so repeatedly yeah. since the uh, since the 1980s right. since the 1980s uh... and how does that affect your work and, and your, your your public persona for instance uh, it probably affects different people differently, but uh, I've been lucky to have been raised in a family where my parents taught me to fight injustice, not to be afraid of it. So when people threaten me, it doesn't make me afraid. It makes me angry. <laughs> and it makes me want to fight harder. Yeah. I, uh, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but do you feel like you have to really be careful with what you say in public appearances? Uh, I I have to be careful because it's it's well known that um, polluters and those who make problematic pro- products that are threats to people they repeatedly file uh, what are called slaps strategic lawsuits against public participation. And there are thousands of those slaps fired a year. It's very expensive to try to defend oneself against them. So what we're really dealing with are people with unlimited budgets trying to silence other people. Right, just by stalling you and... Exactly, exactly. So to be able to do one's work, it's important to... uh, 
to be to be as careful as possible in what one can say, not only for the sake of truth, but also for the sake of peace. When Herbert Needleman, uh, the famous physician, discovered that lead was harmful, uh, the lead industry came after him with so many losses, they kept him from working for more than 10 years. The same is true when Selikoff uh, exposed the harms from asbestos. The asbestos industry came after him. So there are many, 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 many cases where when people expose pollution, they are harassed. 50% of all environmental epidemiologists in the United States report polluter harassment. Wow. So what's happening to me may seem unusual for a philosopher, Mm. but it's not unusual for the people who do environmental pollution work. Right. Health effects of environmental pollutants. I see. Wow. That's sad to Yeah, I doubt that things are as bad in uh, in the EU because in many ways you're not as consumed by money and yeah. greed. You don't have a sense of a lawsuit culture at least. Right, uh, right. We're running out of time a bit. Um, well, actually, one thing, that's a good way to end, actually. Um, what is your future work? What are you working on right now and, and your plans for the immediate future? <clears throat> this may sound irresponsible for an academic, but... I've never sort of planned my life. I always found people who came to me with certain needs, and then I turned my research in the direction that they urged. So um, what's been happening recently is that uh, some communities in the United States have been harmed by... uh, crops being grown for biofuels and turns out that those crops are very very dangerous so I've begun working on that simply because these communities came to me and said we're being destroyed people said you would help us so I've been trying to publish articles that show the dangers of the dangers of the biofuels the main dangers of the biofuels is they give off something called ultrafine particulate pollution Mm. which is about 75 times more dangerous than particulate pollution, which has no safe dose. So far, far more hazardous than, say, living near a dirty coal-fired plant. So even with the cleanest technology, these biofuels can be very, very hazardous to to health. I don't see that as irresponsible at all. uh, Well, I'm just saying, (laughs) wherever the need comes, wherever people say we're in trouble, or someone came to me and said, we live in government-subsidized projects, 16 of our babies have died. I mean, it's always people come to me with their needs, and then I try to see who I might have a chance of making a difference for. Uh, That's a fantastic approach to philosophy, and thank you so much for (laughs) this talk. That was a really enjoyable talk, and I hope you found it inspiring as well. Christian Schrader-Fraschette is living proof that philosophers can have a very real impact on politics and society, and maybe a reminder that we should all look into ways of turning our ideas and convictions into change for a better world. Okay, so what now for such that cast? Well, I'm happy to say that I have a very good interview in the pipeline, which I hope to release by the end of this month. 
It's undoubtedly the most well-known classical philosopher on the series so far, uh, Professor John Cottingham, the man who's responsible for me still referring to myself as a Cartesian. In other news, I will also do a Such That Cast Live. Yes, you heard that right. At the 2014 conference of the International Association of Computing and Philosophy, uh, to be held in Greece in July, I will host a live version of the podcast. This will most likely be a panel of 45 guests to be interviewed in front of a live audience. I have to admit I'm a little nervous about this. I know that some of my podcast heroes have done similar types of live panels, but I'm very curious whether it's going to work for a philosopher audience and philosopher guest. Um, the event might also be streaming live. Uh, if you want to stay informed about this or other news about such that cast, just go to such.cast.com and sign up for our Facebook, Twitter, or RS feed, uh, and I will keep you informed when there's a new episode and in the case that this live event is actually streamed. Okay, that's it for now. If you liked this episode, please help me by spreading the word, retweeting, liking, favoriting, uploading, or whatever you see fit. And I hope to see you again for the next episode, hopefully by the end of this month. Thank you. Thanks.